0: From my morning eggs to my train journey here today, and the skyscrapers we see all around. Steel is a strong feature of daily life for many people across the world. It's tough, it's durable, and it could be recycled. So, all good, right? Well, not quite. Ahead of COP27, we're exploring how carbon can be cut from the big industries that produce the building blocks of modern living. We've already talked about cement. They use a lot of
1: energy to produce cement, and the use and the choice of energy need to change over time. In total, the sector emits between 2.4 and 2.8 billion tons of CO2.
0: And if you missed that episode, you can go back and download it from wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're going to be investigating how to make steel while generating fewer CO2 emissions.
1: What you actually need to make steel is very high temperatures. You really need to heat up that blast furnace to temperatures that demand an enormous amount of energy. And that is why it's called hard to abate
2: being able to shift big industry in this capacity requires massive infrastructure changes that requires both a, a construction and timing as well as a monetary incentive
0: I'm Julia Streets and today on the energy podcast 1.5 and steel Our first guest is Professor Leora Jesselhaus Murray from Stanford University. She's an expert looking into ways of reducing emissions from the steel production process. Thank you so much for having me. Our second guest is Lena Havid, responsible for global key accounts in the metals division at Shell. And her career boasts some 12 years in the steel industry. She's joining us today from the Netherlands. And Lena, it's wonderful to have your company. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Likewise. And so if you think about steel in very basic terms, it takes a lot of energy to make steel and CO2 is released during the making of it. And it's important in the conversation about energy transition with solar panels, wind turbines, dams, electric vehicles. They all depend on steel to varying degrees. So I just want to start with you, Lior if I may, which is, you know, why does the world need so much steel?
2: Great question. So I'll I'll start with the science and the engineering of this. Steel kind of has been the feature that has underlied the Industrial Revolution and much of the progress we've made in industry over the last 200 years. Steel is one of the pillars of modern society today, really because it is the go to alloy for many different things. It has a plethora of different alloys that are tuned for incredible performance and properties so it can do exactly what we need of it. It also is one of the best studied materials, meaning that it has incredible reliability and value for money. So if you have a technology that you want to make sure you can definitely rely on, it it typically would need to be steel. And uh, we're really good at manufacturing steel, so it has an incredible versatility of form. And finally, it is incredibly customizable. There are thousands of types of steel, and it can be customized for any different use case, meaning that it really is the go-to metal for um, most types of high-value components or structural materials across all of industry.
0: There's clearly great appetite for steel. What I'm really fascinated by is where do you see the changing dynamics in terms of supply and demand? That is an interesting point and one that
2: scientifically uh, it's helpful to understand um, the process, to be able to understand what impacts the supply versus demand variability. Overall, steel is one of the biggest commodities on the planet As a result, that means that small local supply shortages and things like that tend to be averaged out over the full global economy. However, any local variabilities because of uh, shortages in construction and things like that, will have very, very big impacts on the local um, supply chain. So the big example I'll give right now is COVID-19. So COVID-19 has created massive changes to the supply and demand in the industry based on changes effectively halting of of construction of, of many types of industry that would rely on steel. As a result, the demand went down. Now, of course, if you look at how steel is made, it is made in a continuous process, meaning you can't just stop the furnaces. You have to continue them at their full capacity to be able to rely on their efficiency and performance. And so this is where you start to see trade-offs in the economies of trying to figure out how to keep the supply chain present and robust while still being able to be robust to these types of demand variabilities.
0: When we think about reducing emissions in steel, what are some of the challenges that exist around that?
2: Maybe I'll start with a, an overview of what it means to make steel from uh, rocks out of the ground to uh, feedstocks ready to actually make into a car. This part often gets overlooked when you're giving a life cycle analysis of, you know, what is the carbon emission of this refrigerator when I buy it at the store? So the, even just the integration of this and creating the steel, getting the feedstock to your metal processing plant, has quite the the large CO2 footprint. So if we look a little bit about where that comes from, when we're making steel, we start by going to the deposits in the ground, the geology of the system, and uh, we start by mining that out with explosives that blast the rock out of the ground. Then we bring that to uh, different crushing and pelletization plants that process those rocks and make them into the feedstocks that we can bring into our furnaces. Then there's typically very large transportation costs to be able to bring that from the mines to the steel processing plants. And then once you get there, you have to make the iron oxide ores into the iron so that's the iron making step. And then you have to make your liquid iron or solid iron into steel. That is the alloying step. And then following that, you have to cast it into the shape and forge it to get the properties that you actually want.
0: Thank you for setting out the, the process involved in this. And I'm really curious to know sort of from Shell's point of view, why Shell is so interested in reducing the CO2 from steel? And is it just simply because you use so much in your operations?
1: So first of all, when you think about the steel process, like Leora just explained very nicely, what you actually need to make steel is very high temperatures. You really need to heat up that blast furnace to temperatures that demand enormous amount of energy. And that is why it's called hard to abate. If you look at Shell's emissions, more than 90% of our emissions are scope three. Scope 3 are the customers that actually buy energy solutions from us. So if we help a steel plant to decarbonize, we both have a win-win situation. They will have less CO2 footprint and our Scope 3 emissions will go down. So you try a little bit to work with steel plants to look at how could you actually get their emissions down by supplying them with solutions. One thing is if you make steel, like Laura explained... Then you have the blast furnace, which have the iron ore and the coke. And we know that some steel plants look into removing uh, the coke and using gas instead. That already give you a reduction. So there are steps already being actively taken in this space to lower emissions.
0: And it's great to hear you talk about the different scopes that have, and the different ambitions that people are facing. But it strikes me that it is it's a hard challenge to meet. So as we were saying, there are some limitations to supporting the production of steel using renewable energy sources. But what if you went to one of the sunniest places on Earth? At the Sohar Kabas project in Oman, solar energy is being used to make ferrochrome a crucial part of the steel-making process. Judith Durkin braves the heat to take a look. So
3: it's only 7am at the moment, but it's already very hot out here. I'm in full PPE, right down to some steel toe capped boots. And even though I've only been out here for about 15 minutes, I'm already pouring in sweat. The solar farm is about 50 hectares in size. So that's around the size of 100 football pitches. And there's 88,000 solar modules across the area, each one of them computer generated so that they move in line with the sun. has an average of 3,500 hours of sunshine annually, which means it really is perfectly placed to harness the power of the sun's rays. And at the moment it's coming up on the hottest time of the year, which is fantastic for the farm and means that lots of renewable electricity can be generated. So the panels get quite dusty during the day, so that sound you hear is a tractor moving up and down the rows of panels and just cleaning them off. The renewable electricity that's produced by this solar farm is actually supplied to a large ferrochrome production facility nearby and displaces some of the electricity that that facility had previously taken from gas-fired power stations. And I can actually see the ferrochrome plant off in the distance, it's about three and a half kilometres away. of the steel in my steel-toe-capped boots probably started their life in a place like this. Those sounds that you can hear in the background at the moment are from Al Taman Insul Ferrochrome, a ferrochrome production facility that's partially powered by renewable electricity from the Habas solar farm. Now, ferrochrome is an alloy that's a crucial component of stainless steel, and it's made by processing something called chromium while at very high temperatures. We're talking 2,800 degrees Celsius here. At the moment, I'm standing a safe distance away from the plant's two electric arc furnaces. You can see the flames and I can feel the heat in the air and hear the crackling. Because such high temperatures are required to process chromium, producing ferrochrome is a very energy-intensive business that requires a lot of electricity. And that's where the Habas solar farm comes in. Using renewable electricity from the Habas solar farm, this ferrochrome plant is able to reduce their emissions by around 25%. Now, the reason why that's not 100% is because at night and in the early mornings, there's less solar energy. And so this plant still needs to make up the difference with electricity from the national grid.
0: And if you want to see where Judith was and to get a real sense of the work taking place in Amman, head to the episode page where you'll find a link to a film explaining more. Linda, I'm really curious to know, what has been Shell's involvement in this project in Oman.
1: There's no one fits all. So it's all tailor-made solutions. So when you work with a certain steel plant, you discuss with them, what could we do here? What would be possible? And we, of course, are often an energy supplier. And in this case, we worked with them to, what are you looking for? They wanted actually very keen on renewable solutions for their plant. So the solar, you could say the solar panels in a very sunny country gives you some power, which could be used in the process. And then with cables, is actually electrifying part of their process. So instead of using gas, they are using green power. So that's a way where you, with a steel plant, identify a way to decarbonize in a partnership. And then, of course, depending on where you are in the region... It could also be in other places where there are more wind and then you use, like Leora was uh, alluding to, that you, there is many solutions out there, but it has to fit for the region you're in.
0: And Laura, I'd love to bring you in here because it's uh, exactly as Lena was explaining that in Oman, where you know there is so much sunlight, you can completely understand the journey this is going on. And I'm curious from your point of view is, you know, why can't the rest of the steel industry follow suit and other big industries follow suit and just switch to renewable power?
2: It's a great question. And there are a lot of challenges with shifting the grid that is used in, in big industry in these directions. I would say that the, the answer to your question lies in a few different categories. From the perspective of, of just the industry shift, being able to, to shift big in industry in this capacity requires massive infrastructure changes that requires both a, a construction and timing as well as a, a monetary incentive. So partnerships like you're describing with, with Shell and Oman, present a really exciting opportunity towards this. And and really, we need to enhance these types of engagements. The other thing I would say is is that this is where also the policy needs to start to get engaged because policy needs to be able to incentivize these types of, of directions. In some places, you actually find that the policy of energy production and things like that is not necessarily as open and customizable as you may expect. And so having ways of making sure that the grid can be robust and can be tailored in ways that allow a microgrid, that allow different types of energy production for different types of use cases, is also important at the policy level. As we're starting to see renewable energy uh, really hit the commercial sector, we're starting to find that There are some unexpected changes in how we have to design our grids to be able to be robust to, you know, giving us energy whenever we need it. For example, the sun doesn't always shine, so solar energy, at some point we have to find opportunities to store that energy so that we can use it when the sun goes down or when the wind stops blowing for uh, wind energy. From the perspective of steelmaking, we can't shut down the plant because the sun set. And so now it means that as we're starting to think towards grids that are at a smaller scale, we're now starting to call them microgrids, that attach to just one specific plant, like steelmaking that's so energy intensive, now we need to start thinking about how we design the renewable strategy for a robust energy system that can deliver energy uniformly at all times of the day and night.
0: And it's fascinating because we talk a lot about the power of collaboration and the importance of collaboration. And I'd love, Lina, to hear your thoughts about, in addition to policy and government involvement, are there any other technical innovations that you're particularly paying attention to that are accelerating change?
1: So what I see, in particularly in acceleration part, is a little bit how you could begin looking at unlocking the value chain. And when I say unlocking the value chain, is this what... We had at the beginning of this uh, podcast, like you start with a miner all the way to the automotive or the construction. And then you could say we, of course, see some announcement that some car companies say we'll buy green steel. Uh, what is green steel? I, I once gave a, a lecture where I said, like green steel, we could call it low embodied carbon, we could call low emission carbon. It could also just be Steel painted green, you know, because there is no right, no uniform definition of green steel, and I think we are closely getting there because some steel plants, of course, are doing a lot to really decarbonize, and they want it recognized, so they use various institutions to get certificates. But it is a space that is really in an acceleration right now, and I I really hope at the end of the year that we will have a unified agreement on what is green steel but it is in that value chain if we get that and you have the circle all the way from the miner to the customer and we all agree on what it is then i also think that as a customer of steel if you know it's really a green steel you are prepared to pay the premium because you do it for the greater good and in that energy transition we all need to make some choices and deliberate choices. So just imagine if we begin having this transparency around what it is and what the cost difference is, it is suddenly a no brainer.
0: And it's all about consumer choice and corporate demand as well as investor behavior. And, and Yori, you, you were nodding along as Lena was talking about this. I would love to know what you think with the, if there were a single thing that would make the biggest difference in overcoming this challenge to help the world stay on track for 1.5 uh, degrees, what would that be?
2: First and foremost, the most important point to make in this in this area is that there is absolutely no one solution that is ever going to get us to where we need to be for the climate accord by 2050. And so to be able to get there, the way that I always break this down, is we need to think in terms of timescales. We need to come up with the short-term solutions to decarbonize the infrastructure we have today. Then we need to come up with the intermediate-term solutions to build the infrastructure we need to decarbonize for tomorrow. And then within a 100 years, we need to change the industry and shift it in this new direction to be able to not have to wonder where we're going to put all the carbon we capture.
0: I have to say it's been the most amazing conversation. If you really, if you, if you think about it, we've unpacked the steel production process. We've thought about really specific use cases. Thought about the power of collaboration, the need for standardization, the need for transparency. Because as you say, when we start to collaborate and we start to agree on certain principles, but there's no one solution, and there are many different ways of, of approaching it. So it's been fantastic, Liora. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation.
0: And Lena, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you also uh, to the two of you, because conversation and communication around how to work together and with proof points are so crucial going forward. It inspires others, but it also shows that we are in an energy transition and it demands collaboration, like you said, but communication, communication, crucial.
0: My thanks to Lena Havid and Professor Leora dresselhaus Murray from Stanford University. You've been listening to The Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. Listen and follow for free wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And coming soon, 1.5 and chemicals. The Energy Podcast is a fresh air production and I must remind you that the views you've heard today from individuals not affiliated with Shell are their own and NotShell PLC or its affiliates. I'm Julia Streets. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.